So in our last lecture, we discussed the creation myths, the creation of the world and all of the stuff that exists and the way that the gods beget other gods in a whole wide variety of different traditions. The Babylonian tradition, the Egyptian tradition, a couple of alternative Greek renditions like Plato and the Phoenician tradition uh, with Philon and Byblos, the Old Testament tradition in Genesis 1, and even the Roman tradition with Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, we're going to do something similar in this lecture, though it's going to be a little bit more focused and a little less scattershot. Um, today we are discussing the myths of humanity. Um, where do human beings come from? What is their relationship to the gods? And what are the calamities that befall their disobedience to the gods? Because that's kind of the crux of a lot of what's going on here. Um, and it is something that is very similar between the Greeks um, through Hesiod and the other traditions that they are sort of observing, and the Israelites with Genesis 2 and 3, and then the story of Noah from Genesis 6 to 9. Um, now I want to start by focusing back on the Greeks, because again, that's sort of the focus in this class, um, and it's kind of our baseline for understanding myth across the board. Um, but also because, you know, it's been a little while since we've read Hesiod's Theogony at this point. Like, this is a good solid week and a half later in all likelihood. Um, and I want to start, you know, tying all this stuff back together again. Um, because we are going to be following the Greeks primarily over the course of the class. So, let's start with that chunk of the Theogony that we skipped um, the first time around. Uh, namely the discussion of Prometheus and how he tricked or did not trick Zeus, depending on how we interpret it here. Um, now at this point you've probably read this and you've also probably watched the video from Extra Mythology, which probably was a little bit more accessible and easier to follow. Um, I can't say I blame you for that, but I want to sort of stress exactly what the video is doing by contrast to what the Theogony is specifically writing about. Remember, Homer is our source. He is one of the, or Hesiod is our source. He is one of the oldest Greek myth writers. This is like as close to bedrock as we can possibly get. And his writing here is foundational to the Greeks. Um, the extra mythology video actually uses other traditions, does not differentiate between the two, largely because, again, they're only interested in reporting the myth, not necessarily reporting the lineage of the myth. Um, but we're scholars, we're college students, we're going to be interested in the primary sources and exactly how this myth came to be. Um, so starting with the theogony, we see we've got a couple of new characters to keep track of. Um, namely, we've got Iapteos, um, who is apparently a major god of some kind, although he really doesn't have anything going on as far as, like, other adventures and other myths or even, like, a domain that he is responsible for. Um, but Iapetos has two sons, Prometheus and Epimetheus, and these guys are big deals. Um, they are not part of the major divine pantheon. They do not get numbered with the big 14. We will not see them very often outside of this myth. Uh, but this myth is important enough that people will constantly refer back to it. Um, because Prometheus is very much sort of the patron god of human beings. Um, the Greeks revere him for his sacrifice, for what he has done for humanity here. Um, and you will find, like, literary references to Prometheus abound. Tons of people talk about how awesome Prometheus is. The image of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods for human well-being 
is a very deeply ingrained image in our culture. Um, so this is an important myth, even if Prometheus isn't necessarily one of our major recurring figures. Um, now, there are sort of three different traditions that we're dealing with here as far as Prometheus con is concerned. Um, the first one is the one that we encounter in the Theogony. Uh, this is the story of Prometheus um, basically setting a precedent for human sacrificial habits. Um, and this is the story of how, like, he prepares, he kills an ox to sacrifice to Zeus, and he prepares, like, two piles. And the first pile, he's got, like, all the meat and all the good bits, the stuff that you want to eat, and he bound it in the skin of the ox, and he buried it in the entrails. So it looks gross and disgusting, um, but actually has all the best parts of the ox. And then in the other pile, he takes the bones, which are, you know, useless, um, and then he covers them in the gleaming, glistening fat, which is like the most desirable part to Zeus and the gods. Um, so he has these two piles, but they're clearly unequal. In fact, in Hesiod's Theogony, Zeus points this out. He's like, obviously you made a mistake. These are not equal piles by any extent of the imagination. One is so clearly better than the other. Um, and this is where it gets a little hairy um, because like it is obvious that one is better than the other. Um, but there is also a clear deception at play here. Anyone looking on would see that the one covered in entrails is the gross part, nobody wants any part of this, whereas the one in the fat is the good part, and everybody wants that. So Zeus naturally picks the gleaming fat, and then as he's sifting through it, he realizes it's just the bones underneath, and he's like, no, I have been tricked. Except Hesiod doesn't tell it that way. Like, this is the way that you will find most myth-tellers expressing it. Um, and it probably is the older tradition. Um, but notice how Hesiod, like, plays out this particular little drama here. Um, so, right around paragraph 550 or line 550 on page 42, it says, So Prometheus said as he plotted deception, but Zeus, who knows eternal plans, realized it and did not fail to recognize the deceit. And he was contemplating in his spirit evils for mortal men, ones that he surely was going to accomplish. And finally, with both hands, he lifted the white fat and became furious in his chest and rage reached his spirit when he saw the white bones of the ox, part of the deceitful trick. And since this moment, the tribes of men upon the earth burn white bones for the immortals on top of smoky altars. Now, again, this is the importance of this sequence. This is setting a precedent. Prometheus is basically deciding um, how the human beings are going to sacrifice to the gods going forward. Are they going to give gods, like, which parts of the ox do the gods get and which parts of the ox do humans get? Um, and the precedent that is set here when Zeus picks up the, the fat with the bones is the Greeks do not have to give the gods the meat. Um, they remove the entrails from the sacrifice, they present all of the fat on the altar, they present the bones, and they burn that, and only that. The meat they get to keep and eat. Um, so this is really convenient from the human's perspective. This is absolutely a win. Prometheus absolutely, like, does humanity a solid here. Um, but whether or not Zeus is tricked is kind of the issue. Um, like I said, in what is probably the tradition that Hesiod is working from, Zeus was in fact tricked. 
like the extra mythology version, he is tricked. Most of the other versions that I hear of the story, like Zeus is tricked by Prometheus, like Zeus goes for the fat and the bones because he thinks that it's the good pile when in fact it's a trap. But notice that Hesiod emphasizes that Zeus knows exactly what he's doing. Zeus is not snowed by Prometheus here. Zeus knows all eternal plans um, and no one escapes the mind of Zeus. This is the one thing I want to emphasize about Hesiod's telling of this story, and another one of those sort of huge value issues um, that is important for the Greek Greeks through their mythology. Hesiod is absolutely driving home that Zeus does not get tricked. This is not how it works. Zeus cannot be deceived. Even Prometheus, wily and intelligent as he is, cannot pull the wool over Zeus's eyes. Um, Zeus knows that it's a trap and he deliberately walks into it because he is planning to screw human beings over for whatever reason. Um, it is not exactly told here. Now, again, in most versions of this myth outside of Hesiod or probably that Hesiod is drawing from, Zeus is tricked. That's why he's upset. That's why he punishes Prometheus. That's why he punishes human beings with Pandora. Like, in a sense, that makes way more sense than, you know, Zeus playing, like, double-think games with Prometheus and actually being in charge of the universe. Um, Hesiod is emphasizing that Zeus is all-powerful, all-knowing, good. Um, at least in some sense. Um, Zeus cannot be deceived is the key here, and Hesiod avoids that particular issue. Um, and notice how Prometheus is punished for this. Um, like just before this passage, because we're not really talking about it in chronological order, um, we're told that Prometheus is bound, like tied up, chained up to a mountain, um, and then an eagle shows up every day to eat his immortal liver. Like, it tears apart his body, eats the liver, and then overnight the liver will grow back in this, like, painful process. And then the eagle will come back the next day and eat it again. Um, this is Prometheus's torture as a result of his crime, trying to deceive Zeus and failing, according to Hesiod, but succeeding, according to many others. Um... Now, the other thing that Prometheus is guilty of is, of course, stealing fire from the gods. Um, that's the other thing that, like, Prometheus is particularly famous for. Um, so you'll notice, uh, like, in the works and days, the other passage from Hesiod that we read around page 101 to 103 or so, um, it is emphasized that this is also Prometheus's deed. It was for this reason that he devised sorrowful, sorrowful miseries for human beings. So he hid fire. This in turn the benevolent son of Iepetos stole for mankind from Zeus the counselor in a hollow cave, unnoticed by Zeus who enjoys the thunderbolt. Um, now Plato will also drive this home, but I want to get to Plato a little later, like after we deal with the tradition here. Um, so like, the symbolism is kind of what's important here. Um, now, admittedly, the way that this myth talks about it, it is, in fact, physical fire that Prometheus steals from the gods. Like, up until this point, human beings apparently have no access to fire. Um, and as a result, they are vulnerable to animals. Um, like, 
as we see in other traditions, animals are big and strong and scary. They have teeth and they have fangs and they have claws and they have all sorts of things. Um, humans are relatively underprotected as far as that's concerned. So Prometheus steals physical fire from Mount Olympus, brings it to human beings, and human beings have been passing this fire around for generations. Um, they, by lighting it at night, they can protect themselves from predators. By using it as a weapon, they can actually threaten other animals um, and keep themselves alive. This is like the literal interpretation of the myth. Um, but the Greeks were very quick to pick up on the symbolic and metaphorical interpretations as well, to the point that at this point they're dominant. Um, when you think of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods, you don't think of just like stealing physical fire, like a burning thing for a campfire, but rather you think of him stealing wisdom, stealing knowledge, skill. This is what Prometheus steals from the gods. Um, and even in Hesiod, this is a pretty decent interpretation of the text. Like this is within the, the purview that Hesiod is presenting here. Um, Prometheus is therefore our benefactor. Prometheus steals fire from the gods. Prometheus tricks Zeus into accepting like the crappy part of the sacrifice. And as a result, Prometheus is humanity's champion. Um, and this is sort of reflected in the fact that it's eventually going to be humanity's real champion, like the champion that humanity produces, Heracles, who rescues Prometheus from his torments. Um, Heracles is the one who kills the eagle who has been tormenting Prometheus all of this time. So there's sort of a re retributive quality to this. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that Prometheus is forever understood to be imprisoned for this sin. Um, the gods were going to screw humanity over. Prometheus intervened, protecting and saving us. And for the tr his trouble, he got chained up and tormented. Um, that's the way, the sort of like most basic version of this myth. Um, and I cannot stress its importance. Like, this is hugely foundational. Um, think about what this means for just the Greek worldview. Um, the idea that the relationship between humanity and the gods is founded in antagonism and betrayal. Um, like, Zeus is always bitter against human beings for tricking him. Um, for, like, Prometheus's sinful behavior here. Um, but also notice that it isn't humanity's fault. Like, this is all Prometheus acting on behalf of humanity, and humanity will get punished uh, when Zeus creates Pandora. Um, but unlike the Israelite tradition in Genesis 2 and 3, humanity is kind of blameless on this one. Um, it was their representative who tricked Zeus, who screwed Zeus over, not humans. What's more, Zeus was kind of the antagonist in this situation. Zeus was setting up a situation where he could take advantage of human beings. Like, if we read it Hesiod's way, and we assume that Zeus did know um, that Prometheus was laying a trap for him, and still accepted it, if anything, it just drives home that antagonism even more. Um... Clearly, Zeus has it out for human beings. Um, he's looking for an excuse to screw people over. Um, and that means that, you know, humans and the gods do not have a whole lot in common. 
like there will be occasions where where the gods are friendly to certain humans where they're partial to certain humans um this antagonism isn't sort of the defining quality of human divine relations in greek culture but it is the f sort of first move in this process um most of the relationships between gods and men are going to be kind of like tentatively hostile um we are not friends we do not trust the gods and they definitely do not love us in some unconditional unqualified sense um we are in a cold war in short and fate is not kind to us or to them honestly but like in the more localized sense like the gods do not necessarily have our best interests in mind in fact all the evidence seems to be to the contrary um, the gods are looking for excuses to mess with us for some reason. Um, so this is sort of like the major paradigm that we, we need to sort of take away from this relationship between uh, gods and humans with the story of Prometheus. Um, now, I do want to talk about Plato's sort of uh, addition to this tradition, though, because this is also really interesting and really just like fleshes it out even more. Um, so you'll notice, like, Hesiod doesn't actually tell a lot of the stuff that comes up in the extra mythology video. That, that story about, like, Prometheus and Epimetheus dividing up um, the, the skills for animals and men. And Epimetheus, who, you know, is really hasty and doesn't think it through, gives, like, strength and claws and, you know, speed and the ability to fly to all the animals. And there's nothing left for human beings. Um, that's a Plato thing, not a Hesiod thing. Um, there's no evidence of Hesiod writing this particular element into the myth, uh, but Plato emphasizes it. Um, likewise, you'll notice that Plato does draw an explicit parallel between the fire that Prometheus steals from the gods and the skills, um, like the skills in creating things, um, the skills in art and the skills in um, like craftsmanship. Um, this is the sort of skill that Plato is referring to. But you'll notice that Plato is telling this myth for a different purpose. Um, Plato is not telling this myth to sort of explain the antagonism between gods and men, to sort of create this overarching framework for why, you know, bad things happen to human beings. Um, for Hesiod, it's because we kind of deserve it, like the gods don't like us. Um, for Plato, his interest is not you know, cosmic at all. It's ethical. Um, as you go on here, you'll notice that the reason why he's telling this myth is to sort of buttress what he's been saying to Protagoras in this dialogue. Um, the emphasis here is that when Prometheus steals the fire from the gods, when he takes, you know, practical wisdom and brings it to human beings, it's insufficient. That does not solve all of our problems. Um, the way it usually is told, once humans get fire, they are now protected, and most of their issues become when the gods mess with them. But that's not how Plato tells it. Instead, he stresses that there's something still missing. We do not have political wisdom at this point. Um, and this is kind of like... When we say political wisdom, it seems from what Plato was emphasizing that we're talking about the ability to get along with each other. Political wisdom is the same as basically social wisdom. 
um, the ability to sort of govern ourselves, to have and make government. Um, and you'll notice that when Plato, when before we get this political wisdom, because Prometheus does not get to steal it from us, it resides with Zeus, um, humans still struggle. Like, they have the ability to make stuff, they have the ability to, you know, create ingenious devices like Hephaestus or like Hermes, um, but we don't have the ability to get along with each other. And as a result, um, most people are isolated. Um, they're alone in the world. They're living in the wilderness in their own, like, small familial groups and not uh, getting along with each other. And this is also a problem because, you know, if you are living alone, then that means that you get picked off by a wolf, wolf pack. You need to cooperate with others in order to make this work. But when people still without practical or still without political wisdom start trying to live in cities so they can protect each other, they can't get along with each other and eventually they just go back to their little, you know, farms and stuff far away from one another. Um, this is solved when Zeus, through Hermes, finally gives up uh, political wisdom. Respect and justice are brought to human beings. And that's the key here for Plato. Up until this point, we have no sense of justice. We are ourselves unjust to one another. Um, but Zeus being sort of the arbiter of justice, which is something that both Hesiod and Plato would agree on, um, when Zeus gives justice to humans, it's also very much emphasized that Zeus gives it to everyone. Um, and I want to sort of stress this, because this is very much what Plato is stressing as well. Like, Plato knows that lots of people have lots of different skills. Like, a blacksmith can create a good sword, and a doctor can help heal people, but they can't switch jobs on a, on a drop of a hat. Like, you cannot expect your doctor to be able to make you a good sword, and you don't want your blacksmith to, you know, sew up your wounds. Um, skills are apportioned disproportionately to people. Everybody has their own specialties. They, they have things that they're good at and they have things that they're bad at. I may be good at writing while somebody else in this class might be good at art and, and drawing, while another person might be good at auto mechanics, while another person might be an excellent mathematician, while another person might be a good scientist, and so on and so forth. Um, this is what expertise is all about. Um, this is what academia is all about. Like, we are very much following Plato's model here. Um, but justice does not work that way for Plato. Plato stresses um, that everyone has an equal share in Zeus's justice and political wisdom um, in understanding what is fair and what is unfair. And that is why Plato stresses that we all sort of get together to decide what is just and what is right. Now, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, maybe next week, I think, now that I think about it. Um, we'll talk about this next week, but Athens was a democracy, the first democracy, arguably. Um, they governed according to community rule. Like, if there was a major decision that had to be made for the community, then everybody would get together, they would debate it for a while, and then they would vote, and whatever position won, that's what would happen. Um, likewise, if somebody was going to be exiled from the community or if somebody was going to be punished or imprisoned by the community, this was something that would go to the demos. Um, everybody would vote on it. Now, Plato is backing this up in this myth. He is arguing that this is why. This is a God-given system. 
because the gods gave us all access to justice equally. The gods gave us all access to political wisdom equally. And therefore, no one is better than anyone else at understanding what is just or what is right, even if people do differ as far as their skills are concerned. Um, so notice a couple of things about what Plato is doing here. First, you'll notice that he's kind of downplaying Prometheus's role, which shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Um, remember, Plato in the Republic, when we read, which we read at like the first week of the semester, um, he emphasized there that you know the gods are good; they are benevolent. The idea of there being an antagonism between the gods and human beings is very alien to Plato's thought. Um, and as a result, Prometheus's role is also de-emphasized. Like, we don't need a champion. We don't need a rebel god who took our side and fights for our, for our success. Um, the gods are largely on our side. Um, but what Plato really draws home here is the fact that Zeus is himself benevolent. Like, considering how poorly Hesiod represents Zeus, how Zeus is like omnipotent and you cannot fight Zeus and you cannot trick Zeus, you cannot gainsay Zeus, but Zeus also has it in for us. Like Zeus is looking for an excuse to screw us over. Plato is emphasizing just the opposite. Uh, Zeus is fair. Zeus is good. Zeus is just, most importantly. Um, as sort of the keeper and arbiter of justice, um, when Zeus gives us justice, that is Zeus basically letting us be as knowledgeable and as wise as Zeus himself. Um, Zeus is the standard for Plato. He is not an antagonist. He is not an enemy of human beings. He does not have his own sort of secret designs the way that he does in Hesiod. No, Zeus is our friend. Um, Zeus is our pal, and we should not like represent him as being evil or negative um so that's very much why you know that that's where extra mythology gets their sort of composite story from on the one hand they take the epimetheus and prometheus dividing up the abilities of human beings um, from plato and they combine it with the, the classical passages from hesiod and probably the tradition that Hesiod himself is drawing from, where Zeus is actually tricked by Prometheus. Um, that's what I want, one of the other things I want to stress here. Like, there is not one version of this myth that tells all of this that has, that is definitive. Or at least there's not an ancient version. Um, the definitive versions of this myth are typically the ones that are comp composed of a bunch of older versions. Um, so if Ovid or Apollodorus tells this myth, they're going to combine parts of Hesiod and parts of Plato and parts of Homer and parts of the other stuff that we see here. Um, there is not just one voice that gets to tell all of this story all at once. So keep that in mind. Um, but let's turn our attention to the second half of this particular myth. Let's talk about Pandora. Um, so... In both Hesiod's Works and Days and in Hesiod's Theogony, after Prometheus does his deed and gets in serious trouble and makes Zeus very mad, Zeus responds by creating women. And this is where things are going to get super duper misogynistic. Like, arguably the most misogynistic that they will ever get in this class. Because seriously, look at this. 
like if you look on the in the theogony on page 43 we have this section creation of the first woman specifically pandora although we're not talking about pandora like by name in the theogony um in the second paragraph there like right after 580 um it says but once he made a beautiful evil thing to pay for the good one he took her where the other gods and human beings were embellished with the adornment of the bright-eyed one fathered by a mighty one and wonder possessed both immortal gods and mortal men when they saw the thorny deception irresistible for men for the race of female women springs from this one for from her is the destructive race and tribe of women a great pain for mortals dwelling together with men no companions in destructive poverty but only in wealth just as when the bees inside vaulted beehives maintain the drones who only partake in base deeds and while the ones strive all day until the sun goes down every day and set up the white honeycombs the others remaining inside sheltered by the hives reap the labor of others into their own stomachs just in such way high thundering zeus set up women as an evil for mortal men partakers in troublesome actions all right let's unpack this a bit so the image that is being drawn here like there's two kinds of bees there's the drones which do nothing and just sit around eating and enjoying the benefits of the workers and then the workers who do all the work and get, collect all the honey and bring it back so the drones can enjoy it notice the comparison here like Hesiod is explicitly saying women are useless. They don't do anything. They just sit at home and eat all our food and they use up all of our money and there's nothing good about them. There are no redeeming qualities to women at all. Like never mind the whole contemporary understanding of women as being like women can do everything that men can do and women should be able to hold down the same jobs for the same wages and so on and so forth. Like we're not even close to that. We are at women are moochers. All they do is sit around and eat all our stuff and basically just like use everything that we produce as men. Damn those women, those useless, lazy bitches. Like this is literally what the text is saying here. There is no hedging it. There is no like, uh, this is just a wild interpretation on the part of Professor Kozlowski. No, seriously, it is not subtext. It is text. Um, like the women are devised as a punishment for human beings. Um, so as much as I wanted to stress sort of the antagonism between human beings and gods, I definitely want to stress this point as well. As far as Hesiod is concerned, as far as this myth communicates, and as far as the Greeks are concerned, women are a blight on men. Um, they are useless, they are unhelpful, they eat all our food, they, like, use up all our money, they raise kids, sure, but that's, like, stupid and pointless, and they really don't have that much to do as far as that's concerned. Maintaining the household is not respected in this culture. Like, what women do is not worth talking about, as far as Hesiod is concerned here. Women are just negative. They are purely a punishment. But also notice why they are kept around, as far as Hesiod is concerned. He stresses that they're useless, that they are pointless, that like the drone bees, they don't do anything but just eat all of the stuff that the workers produce. But at the same time, he stresses that they are irresistible for men. Women are a temptation 
for Hesiod. They're something that we cannot live without because we want them so badly. And yes, I am using the masculine we in this case because that's what Hesiod is assuming, that like only men are listening to this myth and are reading it. Um, we do all this stuff, they take advantage of it, and yes, it's a bum deal, but we keep falling for it. We are completely like defenseless against womanly wiles they are irresistible to us that's the trap zeus made a useless pile of dead weight and then he made us fall so deeply in love with it that we can't help but keep them around like that's women in a nutshell for hesiod um and notice again that like you also can't opt out of this arrangement um, so if you go on to the next paragraph, another disgrace he provided in exchange for the good, whoever does not want to marry, escaping marriage and the mischievous works of women, arrives at deadly old age without an attendant. And he who did not lack sustenance while he was alive, now that he is dead, his rel relatives share out his livelihood. But the one whose destiny is marriage and who acquires a decent wife suited with intelligence, for this one, with the passing of time, the evil is balanced out with the good in a steadfast manner. And yet he who obtains shameless progeny lives with constant anguish in his mind, in his spirit, and in his heart, also an evil that has no relief. Thus it is not possible to cheat or elude the mind of Zeus. Again, Zeus is omnipotent here. You can't trick him. You can't cheat him. He devised this punishment for human beings that we are going to fall madly in love with these irresistible women who are useless and who just eat up all our food and waste all of our time. But if you try and get out of it, if you do not get married, then you're going to be alone in old age and you're going to die alone and you're going to be miserable. Um, either way, that's your punishment because of what Prometheus did to Zeus. And yes, this is extremely misogynist and extremely retrograde. Um, this is absolutely like the sort of ugly anti-women perspective that many people expect to see from ancient cultures. This is very much a justification for patriarchy. Um, men run the show in ancient Greece and for good reason, because women are lazy and useless that's basically the argument being made like it's not even an issue of well what will the women do if they are given power like they won't do anything because they don't want power they don't want you know authority they don't want to work the whole thing about being a woman is being lazy this is how the greeks think of it folks um and yeah it's gross and yes it's ugly um now the one thing i want to stress though is that that's not all it is like, don't get me wrong, yes, it's a mess, yes, it's ugly, yes, it's bad. But why? What specifically about it is bad? Um, like, consider the contrast here with the way that Eve is portrayed in um, Genesis 2 and 3. Like, there's an obvious connection that you can draw between Pandora on the one hand, the first wo woman as she is presented in the works and days, and Eve on the other. Like, if we look at Pandora specifically... Um, on page 102 in Hesiod's Works and Days. In the Greek, pan means all, and dore is to give. Pandora is the all-given, basically. All of the gods contributed in making her and in giving her gifts. 
So we have Hephaestus who devises her body. We have Athena teaching her skill and wisdom. We have Aphrodite making her beautiful and making her tempting. And we have Hermes who gives her a mind that is tricky, literally bitchy in this translation. Um, so she receives gifts from all the gods. She is an irresistible present and she ultimately weds Epimetheus. Um, despite the fact that Prometheus warned Epimetheus never to accept any gift from Zeus. Um, Pandora is just too tempting. Um, but of course, this isn't the end of the story. Pandora is also given a box or a jar. Um, and in the jar, in the box are all of the evils for human beings. Um, so like the way that this is usually portrayed, these are basically what we would call sins, things like jealousy or like cruelty or, uh, evil or, you know, lies, deception, starvation, famine, um, things that are bad that happen to us and things that are bad that we do to each other. Like, remember all those children of Nyx we talked about last week, all the stuff that like night produces, all the bad things like strife and anger and hatred and infamy and so on. This is what is in Pandora's box and Pandora's jar. And, you know, Zeus tells her, don't ever open the box, don't ever open the jar. But Zeus is also tricksy. He told Hermes to give her a curious mind so she would inevitably want to open the box, open the jar. And inevitably she does. When she opens the jar, all the evils come flying out and now human beings are going to be plagued with all of these miseries. Old age and famine and suffering and anger and infamy and so on. Um, but as the extra mythology video stresses and as is stressed here, she closes the box, close, puts the lid back on the jar, trapping hope inside. And I really like the way that extra mythology deals with this particular issue. Like I like their interpretation where on the one hand you could see this as a mercy that hope did not escape. Um, because if we had hope, then it would make everything so much infinitely worse. Or arguably that hope did eventually escape, and now it does make our sufferings worse because we continuously endure them rather than committing suicide and getting ourselves off um, out of this horrible trap. But on the other hand, the idea that it's trapped in there, and that's what is the worst possible situation, that we have no hope, that we should hope but can't, or it is insufficient and maybe hope would help us deal with these evils so so much better, but we don't have it. Um, either interpretation is solid. Like, it's really interesting. Um, the normal interpretation is hope is stuck in the bottom of the jar and doesn't get out, and, you know, now we just endure these evils without hope. Um, there is no way out of it. But I also do really like the interpretation of hope actually making the evils more evil. Um, in that sense, like this was the greatest of the evils and not the tool that would allow us to overcome them. Um, and notice again here in, on page 103, once again, in such a way, it is not at all possible to evade the mind of Zeus. Hesiod is absolutely driving home Zeus's authority here. Throughout both the works and days and throughout the, um, the theogony, Zeus cannot be outsmarted, cannot be out-tricked cannot be deceived, um, and you cannot escape the punishment that Zeus levies on you. Um, all of this is according to Zeus's plan, and humans must abide by it. There is no way out of it. Um, you cannot escape. You cannot evade it. Um, 
Now, again, I want to draw a very clear distinction between Pandora on the one hand and how she is portrayed by Hesiod um, and how women in general are portrayed by Hesiod with the way that the Israelites talk about Eve and talk about women um, in Genesis 1 to 3. Um, so let's look at Genesis 2 and 3 um, because, again, that's like the other major text that deals with this subject and once again because it's biblical it's still at the foundation of our culture even today um so last time we talked about genesis 1 and god's orderly creation of the universe we are literally picking up right where we left off like god has decided okay it is i'm going to you know sanctify the seventh day it will be the sabbath it will be holy everybody has to rest on this day um and then we immediately transition into verse three or verse four here on page 95 um now first off you'll notice that once again we're getting a little repetition here like in at the very end of genesis 1 god created human beings male and female he created them he gave them dominion over all of the animals and so on and so forth um, and a lot of ink has been spilt on why we suddenly get the creation of man again here in genesis 2 so you'll notice in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. A couple things about this. First off, um, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not this story is a continuation of Genesis 1 or a completely different story than Genesis 1. Um, and most scholars, again, from the atheist tradition, most traditional Christians argue that Genesis 1 and 2 are compatible. They're like just going over the same ground. They're like paying more attention to the story of human beings in Genesis 2 than it did in Genesis 1. Um, but the scholarly consensus outside of the Christian community is that these were two different accounts written by two different people um, at two different times. So Genesis 1 is focusing on like the creation of the universe and it is telling one story of how it was created, but Genesis 2 tells a completely different unrelated story that actually does contradict the first. Um, so you'll notice, for example, um, in Genesis 1, like all of the animals are made on, or all of the animals are made on either day 5 or day 6. On day five, we create the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. On day six, we create all the land animals, and then we cap it off with the creation of human beings. In Genesis 2, uh, you'll notice verse 7, Lord God forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. But later in Genesis uh, 2.18, we have god creating the animals of the field and the birds of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them um which reverses that uh so we have like in genesis 1 it's birds first then animals then humans in genesis 2 we have humans first then birds and animals um, so a lot of scholars point to this as a clear contradiction between the two passages, therefore it's two different stories, therefore this is not like the inerrant word of God. Um, and again, Christians will come back and say, nope, they're perfectly compatible, it's just like different emphases, and that's not exactly the way that it should be translated. But, you know, that's beyond the scope of our argument here. Suffice it to say that there is a lot of discussion in the scholarly community about the Bible, and that nobody ever disagrees on this stuff, or nobody ever agrees on this stuff. For our purposes, we're going to treat these as though they are just, like, we're going to treat them independently. Um, we're going to treat them as two separate myths, but we are going to allow for the possibility of them being compatible with one another. Um, 
So we have Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This should also ring a bell. Um, in most of the traditions we've encountered at this point, where we've seen human beings, they are informed by two features. They are formed like out of the ground, like Pandora herself is just earth that is moistened and fashioned into the shape of a woman by Hephaestus um, in the works and days. Um, but notice too the fact that God breathes the breath of life into human nostrils. This should absolutely remind us of Shu and the Egyptian uh, theogony that we talked about last time. Um, life as represented by breath, by air, is another important component of what makes human beings human beings. Um, this is also where we get passages like, from dust you came and from dust you shall return. Um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, so to speak. Um, human beings will return to the earth in Jewish tradition. Um, though in Christian tradition, then you've got like the whole afterlife and spirituality thing, which is a whole other issue. Um, we can talk about that at another time or feel free to ask me questions if you would like. Um, but I want to stress here, that's the components of what makes a human being. Now notice that this is sort of the capstone of God's creation. Like we talked about last time how God creates everything and he sees that it's all good and it's all like very well designed and very carefully ordered. Um, God does not make mistakes in short. Um, this is the one exception though. So if you look, like skip down a little bit to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So first off, we put man in the garden of Eden, which is a great place, lots of food, tons of great stuff to eat. But also there's a prohibition, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This will become important for the plot in a little bit. But then in verse 18, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So this is the first indication in the Old Testament that things aren't what they should be. Um, we created the, the light and the darkness, and it was good. We created the earth and the sea, and it was good. We created the moon and the stars, good. We created animals, good. We created humans, good. But it is not good that the human is not alone. Um, or it is not good that the human is alone. Now, solution number one, apparently, according to this text in Genesis 2, is that this is where God creates all the animals, and he parades all the animals in front of the human being, and the human being gets to name them all. Like, this should make us think of Tolkien. Remember how Tolkien was stressing that, like, the names that we call things are themselves something that we have created, something that we assign meaning to? This is the passage that he's drawing from here. Adam gets to name all of the beasts of the field, all of the animals. But, it is emphasized in verse 20, none of the animals are appropriate. They will not be a good helper to man. Um, so, as a result, put human being to sleep. God takes one of the ribs out of the human being, closes it up, and then takes the rib and fashions it into a woman, namely Eve. Um, and the man says, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man, this one was taken. So first off, radically different from the way the Greeks understand the creation of women. This is not a punishment. 
This is a gift. It is not good for the man to be alone, and it is in God's interest to make the world perfect, to make it as good as possible. This is a failing in the plan. The only one so far. Um, so women are a gift. They're made, meant to perfect creation. It is the one thing missing from the divine plan. Unlike the Greeks, where women are literally just like a trap for humans to fall into. They are a punishment. They are retribution from the gods for the acts of Prometheus. So first thing to keep in mind is that the Jews and the Jewish like faith regards women as being a gift, a good thing, not a bad thing. Their misogyny comes in another direction. Now, the one thing I do want to draw attention to before we move on to Genesis 3 and the actual fall story is the last verse of Genesis 2. Um, we get the explanation verse in verse 24, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. This is very much explanation for why marriage is a thing. But then we get this little cryptic passage, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is probably as close to a description of perfection as the Bible is willing to give us about Eden. Uh, like, it's small and it's subtle, largely to our ears. In the Hebrew, it would have read much more explicitly. This is basically like they're having sex all the time and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, the shame of sexuality doesn't exist at this point. Um, and so Adam and Eve are willing, are able to be naked, to have sex with each other, to be able to use their bodies however they like and not be ashamed of it. Um, and this is part of the plan. Like I know the Christian tradition has over the centuries sort of attached sexuality to the fall. Like sexuality has become this inherently sinful thing. And there's reasons for that elsewhere in the Bible, stuff that we may talk about next time we can come to the Bible in a couple of weeks. Um, but overall, it doesn't belong there. Like, Milton's Paradise Lost, for example, is sort of like the big example of where this comes from, which is kind of hilarious because there is good sex in Milton and like everyone seems to not notice this or pay attention. Uh, but everyone sort of got it into their head at some point that sex is what caused the fall and that like the tree of knowledge of good and evil is just a metaphor for Adam and Eve first getting it on with each other and then like the world went to hell in a handbasket. But that's not the case. Like the, Jew, the Jews are sex positive here. Um, this is part of the plan. Sexuality is a good thing. It becomes corrupted in Genesis 3, but it isn't initially corrupted. Sex is part of God's plan. It is not a bad thing. That is the emphasis here. Um, which that is also in common with the Greeks. Remember how like Hesiod describes the entire universe as being the product of basically sexual relationships between different gods. Um, the Greeks and the Jews, both sex positive. As weird as that may be to think, considering like how wildly this culture varies as far as their other behavior is concerned. Um, but let's see how this starts to fall apart. Um, so in Genesis 3, we introduce our newest character, the serpent. The serpent is more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. And the serpent says, you will not die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the rest of the story we know. Eve takes a fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and she eats it, and she gives it to her husband, and Adam eats it, and this is disobedience, and then there's a fall. Um, but let's take this apart, because there's more to it than that. First off, notice that it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of ink has been spilt over this as well. Um, people frequently sort of take this to mean that God, like, is deliberately keeping human beings in the dark. Like, God is somehow threatened by human beings becoming knowledgeable about good and evil. And therefore, like, he's really upset when they eat from this because, like, they represent a, a, a threat or a rival to him. Um, and this is backed up especially by one of the verses later on. So, like, if you look at verse 22, after the fall has happened, then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. This sort of suggests that God is like, all right, we can't let them be both smart and also immortal. That one won't fly. So they, they got to leave and now they're, gonna, they're going to die. That's one interpretation, but it doesn't necessarily hold up. Like the mainline traditional Jewish and Christian interpretation is that like it's not necessarily about rivalry at all. God is not scared of human beings. Um, as much as the serpent insists that, like, you will become like God if you eat it, that's usually taken to be just a straight-up lie, um, if not a pretty clear and willing misconception. Um, the serpent is crafty. It deceives. Um, and therefore, we shouldn't trust it. Um, at the very least, it's wrong about the death thing. Like, when he says, you will not die, well, no, they very obviously do die after this. It takes a while, like 900 years by the genealogical standard. Um, but nonetheless, death is what's going to happen. Um, they admittedly do not die the day they eat it, but they will die from then on. Death has infected them, so to speak. Um, so, not exactly God trying to keep human beings down. Um... However, the other interpretation that I have seen and that a lot of Christians do hold up is the idea that the tree actually is pretty inert. Like, it's not a magic fruit that causes them to, you know, change their behavior or, like, they change their knowledge or their metaphysical quality. Like, the tree might not even be special. What's special is that God told them not to eat it and then they did anyway. Um, so... That's the problem. Disobedience is the problem. Um, the fact that God told them specifically not to do the thing and then they decided to do the thing, that's what makes them knowledgeable about good and evil. This is what gives them the ability to know what evil is by doing it. Um, and so there's nothing special about the tree at all. Like, I, I think that one actually has more backing in the text than, you know, the idea that God is, like, trying to get rid of humans before they get too powerful. Um, but even so, like, that is, this is a bit of a reach, and this is definitely an interpretation. Um, now, where we go from here, the, the next thing that we definitely need to discuss is, like, the process by which everybody falls. Um, like, normally, 
the way that this is sort of envisioned is, you know, Eve and the serpent are having this conversation in the middle of the forest and Adam is like really far away and Eve is finally convinced because, you know, women, right? They're so gullible and stupid. And then Eve eats the fruit and she like runs across the forest and Adam is like reclining in the shade. And Eve is like, hey, have some of this fruit. And Adam's like, where did this fruit come from? And Eve's like, oh, nowhere. Just try it. It's great. And Adam's like, okay. And Eve gives him the fruit and Adam eats the fruit. And Eve's like, surprise, it's from the knowledge tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam's like, no. That's the one tree we're not supposed to eat from. You tricked me. And Eve is like, I'm so sorry. That's not how this text goes. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but like the actual verse that is relevant here. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is literally like Adam and Eve are standing together in the middle of the forest listening to the serpent saying like, hmm, yeah, he has some good points. And then Eve takes the fruit and purely by accident she's the one who eats first literally just hands it off to her husband who has been like approving of this whole action adam eats from the fruit and now they're both doomed now they have both fallen um so on the one hand obviously it doesn't matter like for hundreds of years people have been using this passage to justify why women suck um, and I like no amount of me, you know, standing here in 2020 arguing that that's not how this passage is supposed to go is going to change the fact that it's been the basis for misogyny for decades, um, centuries, millennia, even, um, like th th that, that war is lost. <laughs> um, and this is very much the dominant interpretation where Eve is just a deceiver and she totally screwed Adam over and you know, it's all her fault. Um, notice that God doesn't see it this way either. So first off, we get the whole, like, nakedness thing. Apparently, eating the fruit has caused Adam and Eve to become aware of their own nakedness, and now they're, they're modest, so they have to, like, hide their nakedness from one another. They, they feel shame now. Um, and then God is, like, walking through the Garden of Eden, and he's like, Adam, Eve, where are you? And they're like, shh, don't let them know that we've ate from the thing and god's like are you hiding from me you do know that i'm god right get out here and then it turns out that they're like clothed with fig leaves or something and it's a giant mess and the the summary punishments then transpire um and the punishment is what i want to focus on here because there's a lot to unpack in the punishments um, so if you look at verse 14, down at the bottom of page 96, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So punishment number one is a serpent punishment. Serpent's not going to have legs anymore. Apparently it had legs at this point. Now it doesn't. Now it just scurries around on its belly all the time. Verse 15, punishment two, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All right, so this one's huge. Like, it doesn't look huge. It's more like, and this is why women are scared of snakes. Like, the, this is how I read it the first time that I read this passage. I'm like, okay, so that's why women don't like snakes. There's enmity between the serpents and the women because God said so according to this punishment. But in actuality, like, contemporary Christian tradition 
reads this as what is known as the Proto-Evangelion, um, i.e. the first instance in the Bible of the announcement of Christ's coming. Like when it says, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, like usually this is translated between your seed and hers like the original word would have been seed both in the you know sense of like a plant gives seeds but also in the sense of a man spurts seeds um yeah it's that graphic um the assumption here is that it's not just any seed like it's not all women who hate snakes it's jesus specifically born of a woman come to destroy the serpent satan who deceived human beings in the first place um that's possible like again this requires a christian perspective to reinterpret this passage it certainly wasn't how the original jews read this passage um but even more importantly for our purposes like the connection between the serpent and satan or lucifer or the devil is very recent and most likely not original to this passage at all like the passage doesn't oppose that reading the idea of the serpent being you know a manifestation of satan is not at cross purposes with the writing here um but it isn't original it isn't native to it that is a later interpolation a later reading the prophets and the talmud and christianity sort of reading their theology into this passage for our purposes in this class is just some rando snake who basically gives all snakes a bad name and for our purposes it basically boils down to women and snakes dislike each other um even though you should probably know that this is going to be the found like one of the passages that christians point to when they say this is you know an announcement that jesus was going to be a thing um jesus will get struck by the serpent in his heel he will die on the cross but then he will crush the serpent's head he will destroy satan in the end but enough reading forward into christianity let's go on with more punishments punishment number three to the woman he said i will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you technically this is a twofer we get two bonus punishments here punishment number one it's gonna hurt to have babies now um, you will labor in childbirth apparently if they had had kids beforehand and really there's no evidence that they didn't have kids in the garden of eden it's all very ambiguous um if they had kids before leaving the garden of eden it would have apparently been painless like kids just shoot right out no problem no muss no fuss no blood no pain easy peasy but now that the woman has fallen now that she ate the fruit she is going to be first in pain when she delivers children that is her work but also she's gonna be subservient to men and this is where the misogyny creeps into the text um this is the passage that jews and christians alike will point to for basically all of christian and jewish history and say and that's why it's not okay for women to work or that's that's why it's not okay for women to rule a household or that's why women are not allowed to run like um a church uh and it, like i mean this people today make that argument there are other passages in the bible that they'll usually point to first um but when christians hold up a quasi-patriarchal societal structure this is one of the reasons that they will usually go to 
Um, this is a pretty clear-cut example of a detail in a myth having major repercussions for entire societies even thousands of years after the myth was written. Um, to this day, when you know a church is having a conversation about whether to let a woman be pastor or not, this is one of the proof texts that people are going to quote. Um, like, the best take on this, like the, I mean... I don't know how to put this. There are definitely lots of different perspectives within Christendom. Lots of people are willing to give women leadership roles in the church, in the family, etc. Um, like, this passage isn't necessarily definitive, um, but this is a passage that is frequently employed to defend keeping women out of ministry, keeping women as subservient in the household. Basically, the idea is if God said women are gonna be subservient now, they're gonna be subservient because God said so. Um, that's how I wanna run my house, that's how I wanna run my church, and no one can tell me otherwise because God said so. Um, so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether women can do the same job as a man because God said so. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we go from myth to practicality. Uh, but we're not done yet. We're on to men punishments. Verse 17, And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So punishment number, I guess we're up to five at this point. Two for the serpent, two for the women. Punishment number one for men is it's gonna suck making food now. You have to work for it. The ground is going to fight you. Um, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Um... From now on, life is not going to be easy breezy bumming around the garden and just pulling whatever fruits fall off the tree to eat. You're going to have to work the ground and it is going to fight you every step of the way. You are going to struggle. You are going to suffer. You are going to have to work hard. Um, this is the punishment to men. And notice that there is a sort of authority problem now. Like, remember that the reason why God is God like, one of the powers that God demonstrates in Genesis 1, he's, he's able to say, like, let there be light, and there's light. Or, you know, let the earth divide from the sea, and now that happens. God can command stuff to do stuff, and it will. Um, and it seems likely, from the context of the passage, that when God passes dominion to human beings, when he says, you know, you will now rule over the plants, you will have the seeds for your food, you will have, you know, animals and so on, all of that comes along with it. Like, humans too might have some supernatural capacity to command the universe around them in Genesis 2. But if they did, it's gone now. Now they have to work the fields to make it grow fruit. Fruit. Now they have to toil and struggle and suffer all the days of their life in order to make the world yield to them. Um, it's not going to happen naturally anymore. And this is the idea of sin. Like, the, uh, the concept of sin itself is a little bit alien to this text, a little bit reading backwards, but the theology is pretty consistent whether you're reading it from a Jewish or Christian perspective, and it's pretty consistent even in Moses' day. 
Um, this represents a radical transformation of the universe. It used to be good, now it is bad, or at least it is corrupted. We are never going to get God, you know, making stuff and saying that it's good after this passage. Um, it is irrevocably damaged. It is fallen. The world is not as good as it used to be. And it is human beings' fault that it's not as good as it used to be. Um, and you can find echoes of this in Hesiod as well. Like, again, it is, like, partially human fault that, like, the world sucks because Pandora and all of the evils got away. Um, you can point to the myths of the five races, like the gold race was awesome and the silver race was less awesome and the bronze race kind of sucked and the heroic race was better and then now we're in the iron race and everybody sucks and humans are just a pale shadow of what they used to be. Um, there is sort of an echo there, but the idea that it is directly human beings' fault, not Prometheus acting on our behalf, not some sort of like natural consequence of different races or generations of human beings, but literally like it was us, we screwed it up, we had paradise and then we threw it away. That's a very typically Jewish thing and it will absolutely inform the Jewish culture. This is very much a culture built on guilt to some degree. The guilt of the sins of our fathers. Um, you could probably make the case that guilt is a Jewish concept. I mean, hell, Nietzsche does. Um, although it might be a bit of a stretch and Nietzsche is certainly not a reliable source for our purposes. Um, what I want to stress is that this radically changes the way that humans view their world as well as the way that they view women and their gods. Um, Hesiod, the gods are antagonistic. They're untrustworthy. For, for the Jews, God is the only trustworthy thing out there. It's unfortunate that we are not trustworthy and that as a result, God is distanced from us not because of what he did, but because of what we did. Um, the distance is not God's fault. It's not like Zeus is always looking for an opportunity to screw us over again. Instead, we are constantly failing to live up to God's standards. Um, and the rest of the Old Testament is just a litany of people failing to live up to God's standards because of sin, because of the fallenness of the world, because of the evil in people's hearts. Like, over and over and over again, where Hesiod will emphasize that fate is unpredictable and really nobody's in control of the situation, we are just all spinning out of control all of the time, the Bible is very emphatic. No, we screwed this up, we continue to screw this up. Everything that is bad that happens to us is our fault. Not the whim of fate, not the result of some cosmic like injustice or disorganization. We screwed it up. We are the ones who did the bad thing, and as a result, we are getting justly punished for our misdeeds and for the misdeeds of our progenitors, the people who came before, our fathers and our forefathers. Um, now, the other thing I want to stress is this issue of the women. Like, both texts are to some degree misogynistic from our contemporary cultured modern perspective. Uh, but they're very misogynistic in very different ways. For the Greeks, women are the worst. They were designed to be the worst. They have always been the worst. There is no chance of them ever being anything but the worst. They were designed as a punishment for human beings. They do nothing productive in the universe besides, like, get in men's way and ruin men's day. Like, 
there's nothing good about women, but we just love them so much we can't like avoid falling in love with them and having relationships with them. For the Bible, women are defined not by being like the worst thing ever and divined as a punishment for human beings, but as a gift that didn't live up to its potential. They are weak, not bad. Um, and this is complicated. Like, you will find multiple stories in the Old Testament of women who do live up to their potential. Women who, in fact, exceed the men of their time. Like in Judges, for example, there's a great story about Deborah, who is one of the judges. Like, she's one part prophet and one part, like, religious leader. Um, and she basically goes around doing awesome stuff and ruling the Israelites because no man is there to do it. And she, like, delivers this long speech in Judges about, you know, I had to take over because you men suck and failed to live up to your standard. Um... God gave me authority because none of you were good enough to stand up and accept it. Um, but that's an outlier. Like, Deborah is unique in that sense. But it means that women can fill that role. Women can, like, bring the community of Israelites together. Women can have major roles in leadership when God chooses to do so, as is the case with Deborah or with Ruth or with Esther. Um, there are, in fact, quite a few examples of strong female figures and role models in the Bible, probably more than we're going to run into in Greek mythology. Certainly more in the sense of the, like, forward-thinking feminist archetypes that we want for to sort of like present as role models for women today um the fact of the matter is like the greeks produced athena and athena is awesome don't let me downplay athena but when we are going through the various women in the myths in this class probably like the paradigmatic like good woman is penelope and she's good because she obeys she is loyal that is the characteristic that we admire most in women the bible will occasionally admire leadership qualities in women in a way that the Greeks simply don't. Um, so notice that the misogyny is focused. It's different. Like misogyny is not always the same thing. Like these cultures are retrograde about women, but they're retrograde in different ways and their attitudes will inform the way that they treat women in their culture. For the Greeks, women are just basically one step removed from possessions. Um, they will be enslaved, they will be carried around from house to house, they will live in your house, and if somebody steals them, then you get mad at them, and that's really all it comes down to, because they're basically chattel. For women in the Bible, there is this element of chattel, they are certainly subservient, but they are also, you know, full-fledged human beings in their own right. They have their own emotions, they have lines, they engage with their husbands and with God directly in some cases. Um, it's not that simple. There is a radical difference between the way that the Israelites see women, even in their subservient, misogynistic way, versus the way that the Greeks see women as being just like a blight on the human species. Um, so it's not always the same. And I encourage you to look for those differences because they're way more informative than just making a blanket statement like all ancient cultures hate women. They kind of do, like it's pretty tough to find an ancient culture that is much more female positive kudos to you if you track one down there they are out there um but as far as like the ancient western religions are concerned it is important to notice that misogyny is relative um you like being a woman in a jewish culture is occasionally way better than being a 
Jewish or being a woman in the Greek culture. Um, you have more ability, you have more say, you have more respect in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, again, it's complicated and there's a lot more to talk about there. Um, now, obviously, we I've already been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, so like I've exhausted my lecture time and all without talking about Deucalion, Pyrrha, Noah, and the flood stories. Um, not a, this is how it usually goes for me. Like as as cool as the flood stories are, and it, I definitely want you to know them and to like know the difference between Deucalion and you know the emphasis of like him floating in his chest, um, as well as to com as contrasted with Noah and his ark saving all of the the animal species. Um, I do want to drive home like one important point about this which is that they are very similar both in the way that the story is told, i.e. there's this flood and they've got to like find a safe land after it subsides, but also the fact that it, the flood is the result of punishment. Um, the flood follows on the heels of Pandora opening the box. Like the justification for the flood is Zeus is looking out at the world and he's like, wow, we really screwed the pooch on this one. Look at all those humans suffering under all of the evils that were let out of Pandora's box. So he floods the world to like start fresh. Likewise, in the Bible, it's the same deal. Um, it is the story of Noah is prefaced by an acknowledgement that like all of the humans are misbehaving. Sin has gotten the best of the world. And so God floods the world and we're going to start fresh with Noah. Now, fun fact, it doesn't go well. Noah almost immediately sins. It gets real ugly real fast. There's some major booze and possibly like homosexual incest involved. It's really ugly. Um, at any rate, like the similarities are what I want to stress there. Virtually every ancient culture has a flood narrative. It is something that baffles um, the archaeologists and students of myth and has for generations, um, especially because, uh, like I emphasized earlier in the lecture, there's not a lot of scientific basis for the idea that there was a worldwide flood at some point, even though all of these cultures apparently have this story in their you know genes somewhere. They're, is that a good thing to say they're like mythological genetics um at any rate keep that in mind um for next week we're going to be switching gears um we've spent the last two weeks talking about creation myths now i want to talk about identity myths um the myths that define a specific culture as contrasted with other cultures um and you know this is another important part of being a human being and telling myths Myths help us to distinguish ourselves. They are the stories we tell ourselves to like indicate our bonds with our kin and also our enmities with our enemies. Um, so we're going to start with the Greeks, naturally. Um, next week we will start by reading several myths that have to do with Athens and Sparta and Thebes, three of the major city-states in the ancient Greek world and three of the most like prolific mythic traditions. Um, so as you are reading these myths, keep in mind what they say about each individual culture and what makes that culture unique or special, especially with Athens and Thebes and Sparta is pretty obvious. Um, so read about Theseus, read about Perseus, read about, well, Perseus is later, Theseus, read about Theseus, read about uh, the various Theban figures, including Oedipus and company, um, and we will talk about them next week.